Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and I am your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. Hello, everyone. Hello. <laughs> You're having a good day. <laughs> so, Caroline, yeah. who do we have on Writer's Voices today? Well, we uh, talk about page turners. I mean, I've written, I, I have written, I have read page turning books, but not as good as this one. Aww, <laughs> <really is>. yeah. <laughs> our, our author today is Tracy Clark, and she has been has achieved numerous awards for her mysteries. Um, after receiving several awards, her outstanding book, Broken Places, has been optioned by Sony Picture Television. Mm-hmm. So we can look forward to that. Oh, this that is exciting. <laughs> okay. She's the winner of the 2020 and 2022 G.B. Putnam's Stun Sue Grafton Memorial Award. And it's so many awards, it's just hard, you know, but <laughs> she's a Chicago native, and she works as an editor for the cha- in the challenging newspaper business and roots for all Chicago. So she has quite, quite a... Uh, repertoire there and I, I just I'm very impressed I really am and so welcome, welcome Tracy. Yeah, yeah welcome back to Writer's Voices Tracy Clark glad to be here thanks author, for inviting me author of Hyde that is the book we're discussing today now this is your is this your fifth published mystery yeah it is it is and I always like to ask this question is this your fifth book that you've written or just the fifth that you've published um, it's the fifth that I've written because I don't throw anything away. I mean, Whoa. there are some writers, some writers who sort of work on something, right? And it's not working and they sort of put it aside and start something else. I'm not one of those people. I, I'm sort of pigheaded. Um, so I sort of stick with whatever I'm writing. So, and I figure out whatever the problem is and I fix it. So, uh, all five books are just as you, uh, I, I started them. Uh, I finish them and I fix them and then I go on to the next thing. So I'm not one of those sort of people who sort of, you know, ping pong around and sort of start something new, but if that's not working, I make it work. Well, that's great. Good. I mean, some people do that. And we also have some, some authors who finished book one, but couldn't get it published, finished mm-hmm. book two, weren't able to get it published. Maybe I did that. S- you did that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, uh, I did the first book, uh, finished it, start querying and sending it out. Uh, it didn't sell, got the rejection letters back. I just kept writing the same characters. So by the time they uh, took that first book, uh, I had two others uh, that had already finished and ready to go, sort of. Um, so I had three. So they took one, uh, they took all three, and then I was off to the races. Um, but I just kept writing. Um, <laughs> I didn't care how many rejection letters came in. I just piled them up and kept on writing and kept on writing. Um, and it wasn't wasted time, which is a cool thing. Uh, you would think that, oh, you just were sort of you know, spinning your wheels and you know, you're wasting your time. It, I was sort of teaching myself as I went along that this is the process. Um, this is how you write a book. You get better at it the more you do it. And so by the time I sort of got that contract first thing, um, I had three books ready. I was off to going. Uh, I sort of knew what I was doing, sort of. Um, and so I just sort of kept, <laughs> kept doing it. I just sort of kept, I just kept going. I was not going to let somebody say, hey, you know what? Uh, this book is crap and we're not going to do anything with it. Go somewhere and, and sit down somewhere. Uh-uh. <laughs> I, 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 I it's not in my nature. It's just not in my nature. So I just kept doing it. Oh, golly. <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful lesson for everyone. It just keep going. I've, you know, I've keep always going. said that it, you can't, there is no such thing as failure until you <laughs> give up. Exactly. Um, because the more you do it, uh, even with that rejection, and it's devastating when no, those letters come back, um, because you had oh, all your sure. hopes and dreams in it, right? Uh, this is going to be the time for you. And you get the rejection letter. And then you have a decision to make, um, whether you stop <laughs> and sort of believe what they tell you. Or you have to sort of believe in yourself that you know what you're doing. Uh, this, these are your characters. This is your story. And you have a feeling that you've got something worth listening to. And you, that comes within you. If you've got it, you're great. If you don't, you need to get it um, because you have to keep, you have to keep going. You have to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Never give That's up. Right. Never give up. That was, um, I did a speech for Toastmasters a long time ago about Winston Churchill 
saying never give up, you know, during mm-hmm. World War II, because things looked really dark for England. Oh, yeah. I mean, they almost <laughs> lost that war. <laughs> they yeah. really, really close to losing. So, yeah, you have to sort of stick with it. Yeah. Uh, that's the only option you have. Yeah. That's right. Or do something else that makes you happy. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, but if, right. you're, if you're if you sort of believe yourself to be a writer, that's kind of what makes you happy, and you have right. to sort of fight for it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times, yeah. um, this is what you were meant to be uh, most times, uh, and you have to sort of fight for it. So, teach yourself how to do it. Keep doing it until you get it right. Now, Tracy, are you still working in the newspaper business I am. as well? Uh, so that's my day job. So I write from five thirty in the morning to eight o'clock in the morning. And then I have my bowl of Cheerios and my orange juice. And then at 8.30, I swivel over and I edit op-eds and comic strips and puzzles and stuff like that. So that's my day. Um, it doesn't vary from day to day. That's my, that's my schedule. Um, you know, something fantastic happens. I might alter it a little bit, but, you know, that's it. <laughs> 5.30 in the morning. I'm up at my desk. I'm opening that laptop getting that story down on that uh, blank page. So, yeah. Yep. And then you take the evenings off? Oh, uh, yeah, because by that time my brain is sort of fried and I, all I want to do is, like, have a cookie and watch Midsummer Murders and just <laughs> sort of relax. Oh, oh, that's, my, that's my day. Oh, okay. Midsummer Murders. Okay, so uh, Midsummer Murders, there's, what, 22 seasons of it, something like that? I think, yeah. I think yeah, it's uh, yeah. 22, 20, yeah. Yeah, so, you, yep. so it can take you quite a while, and then by the time you get to the end, do you go back and start over again? No, because once you sort of get the end of the puzzle, it's, you know, yeah, it's, you know, so, yeah. but that's not my only thing. I've got Father Brown. I've got uh, all the other ones. <laughs> yep, yeah. I'm watching uh, all of it. So, How about yeah. Foil's my... War? Do you, do you do Foil's uh, War? Not so much. Not, not so, so much. much. So, yeah. so Caroline and I watch um, Midsummer Murder Mysteries. Um, mm-hmm. And we started from the beginning not too long ago. And so we're maybe season six, seven or something. So there's still a lot left to go, but, mm-hmm. um, they're so complex. Yeah, they are. And you yeah. would think there is n- it cannot be possible for a tiny village. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. How many know. murders to can you have? this many residents <laughs> and still be in existence. I mean, come on. There's a murder every week. Yep. So, the town's got to be like a ghost town by now. But still, it's populated. <laughs> uh, the, the shops are open. Uh, everybody's does, you know, walk in the street. I mean, but I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's usually just not one murder either. There's usually a no, series I mean, of them. One guy was found in a vat of what? I mean, what? The weirdest thing tied to a tree. I mean, nibbled on by like rats. I mean, it's weird and complicated yeah. for a tiny village, you know, somewhere, you know, in yes. a, I don't know where it is, but you know, it's just weird, yes, but yeah. I love it. <laughs> so with Hyde, you are um, branching out a little bit. Because your first four books uh, were a series, essentially, with right. the same characters. So why did you decide to depart from that? Well, uh, Kensington uh, bought four books. I delivered four books. They did not ask for book five. So I am a writer for hire. I go where the jobs are. Uh, and so uh, my agent sort of shopped it around, and it took about maybe a couple of weeks uh, before Thomas and Mercer uh, showed an interest. And so now we're back uh, in, in, in the game. So uh, it was supposed to be Hyde. It was supposed to be my first standalone. Okay, these are all new characters, um, exploring the police procedural as opposed to the PI uh, genre. Uh, but when I handed it in, uh, they liked the characters so much that they asked for another one uh, with those characters in it. So now I have two series. Uh, the first one is sort of there. Uh, there is a possibility maybe for a fifth or sixth in that series. Uh, but I'm in the Harriet Foster series now, uh, two done, uh, one more going. And there might be a possibility for uh, future ones after that, but at least three. Uh, you know, and so I go where the contracts are. So that's, uh, that's, my, that's my life. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Tracy Clark, author of Hyde. Why that title? That title because it only sort of pings on the murder cases that she's uh, investigating, but also her personal life. Um, when we meet Harriet, she is a character who is in conflict with herself. And so she's hiding from the world. Uh, she's hiding even from herself. Um, so it's sort of a dual title uh, pinging, uh, but it definitely has to do with the murders because this 
Craven Killer is killing young women with red hair and blue eyes, and he's hiding their bodies under the city streets. So uh, on the Riverwalk uh, off Michigan Avenue here in Chicago, uh, on Lower Wacker, uh, next to the dumpsters where it sort of smells like rotten milk and spoiled cabbage and rats are scurrying around. So he's hiding the bodies for a reason. Uh, he's hiding them in weird, precarious places. And so that's what the title is about. So those two things going, uh, one little word uh, that can mean so much. <laughs> and also several of the characters are hiding things, too. Yep. Um, I mean, you know, the, yeah, some of the suspects are hiding things, but not mm-hmm. what you think they're hiding. It's, it's exactly. quite interesting. <laughs> and I love that. I love that sort of readers have to sort of think about it. I mean, it's entertainment, yes. Uh, but I also want you to sort of have an interesting puzzle and an interesting sort of journey to sort of, you know, go on with the characters, too. So, you know, I kind of like that. I like the little multi-layered, uh, complicated little things. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and you do sort of introduce the suspects to us. We we kind of know it's not really a whodunit. It's not like complete surprise. But the oh, I don't know about motivations that. <laughs> are what are what's really surprising. Yeah. yeah, that's what intrigues me about most people, not just book people. You know what makes people do what they do. Uh, there's a reason for it. Um, we might not understand what it is, but there's a reason why people do the things they do, and that always interests me when I start writing characters that I sort of want to sort of discover and, and know a little better. Um, so everyone has them motivations. Uh, the bad guys, the good guys, everybody's got them. So it's sort of fun to sort of dig into there and sort of figure out what that little inner workings are. I find it interesting that you um, bring up the subject of the police brutality and the, you know, defund the police and, so, and you know, you're, you're on the policeman's side perspective mm-hmm. in one sense, but you're showing both sides of that issue. How do you navigate that, and why did you decide to do that? Well, I didn't really decide to do it, but you can't sort of write crime fiction uh, set in an urban city like Chicago and sort of ignore the factors that sort of go into the work that the police officers do. Um, When we meet Harriet, she's an African-American female. She's 43, divorced. Uh, She's got all this flaws and baggage sort of on her shoulders. But she's from a community, right? Uh, she's from a community that sort of sees what she does and who she is as the enemy. And so she's got that to sort of contend with. And she's also in a department that is not primarily her. It wasn't set up for people like her. And so she's got the conflicts there. She's got it in her community. And she still has a job to do. Um, so I don't sort of look at a way or find a way to sort of write about this case or this city or this job or this department without sort of, you know, at least pinging on some of the issues that they sort of have to deal with. Um, police brutality, they're getting it from the community. Um, good cops, bad cops. Uh, not all cops are good. Not all cops are bad. Um, it's just a complicated ball of things that she has to sort of deal with. And that you can't write about it, at least convincingly, or try to, uh, without at least t- touching on it, uh, at least explaining what the things are and what she has to go through, and why. Um, So I didn't sort of spend a lot of time on it, just sort of let readers know that it's there. This is what's sort of brewing under the surface of what she has to do, her job, her community, herself, and then move on, because it's ultimately about uh, murder and investigation and story uh, and her journey. So you have to mention it, Mm -hmm. but, you know. I I found it interesting, though, that, you know, you that's... You were, people were really sort of, we don't like the police. You know, they were pretty in their face about it. And some of the police officers were very, very defensive about it. And others were like, yeah, we kind of understand why -hmm. you're saying that. And we're trying to do better. Mm -hmm. And I liked that, that, that there was that kind of openness to maybe things do need to change. And, Mm -hmm. and one of the characters is old, old school. And, and he's, he doesn't come across very well. Yeah. <laughs> no, he does not. <laughs> you know, but if I sort of left him there, that wouldn't be fun at all. So um, in books two or three, uh, we will learn a little bit more about that particular police detective 
and figure out what his his malfunction is. Ah. <laughs> and so there might be an opportunity for him and Harriet to sort of get to sort of get to a place where they can at least tolerate each other in the same room. So <laughs> things have to move. Uh, characters have to grow. Uh, things have to progress. Uh, and so Lonergan and uh, Harriet will sort of come to a meeting of the minds at some point. They have to. Now, Harriet has a lot of backstory. And I honestly thought this might have been not book one in the series that, you know, because mm-hmm. there's so much to her, to her history. In the later books, do you deal more with that history? Um, yes, because she still has, well, when she's on the job, she's great. Um, she knows how to be a cop. Um, she's a great investigator. She's working this case like nobody's business. Uh, but when she goes home and she takes that gun and badge off, um, she's sort of stuck emotionally and in her personal life. Um, she sort of goes from this brilliant side of her to the side of her that has not been able to sort of move on and to sort of go on with her life. And that has to sort of change, too. Uh, in book two, she gets a little bit better at it. Uh, hopefully in book three and four, if there are ones, um, she'll get a little bit better still. Uh, but she has to sort of grow. She has to learn something. She has to move ahead. So. Yeah, that will shift, that will change, and that will be the same for all of the characters. All of the characters will have to sort of, you know, learn something. I really like the scene with her um, former partner's son at his oh, birthday yeah. party. Yeah, yeah. 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 I kind of like the putting the little, I like putting kids in because you learn so much from children. Um, and so here is a kid who is in the throes of grief. Uh, when we sort of meet him, it's only four months out, I think, uh, from with this tragic thing that happened. And kids have a different way of dealing with uh, loss and grief and mourning. And you sort of have to tune into that and sort of help them through. So I think Harriet sort of help, helping him through when she can't help her own self through is sort of an interesting sort of a thing. And I sort of wanted to sort of play with that to see how I could sort of make it work. So um, the kid's trying to deal with it. Harriet has not been able to deal with it, and yet she's still trying to help him sort of get to the next stage. So, uh, yeah, I like that scene, too. Now, what what are the similarities between Harriet Foster, your de- police detective in this book, and um, is it Cassandra Rains? Was that the mm-hmm. name of your mm-hmm. previous heroine? Yeah. How are they the same, and how are they different? Well, I don't think they're that much uh, alike, um, other than the fact that they're African-American and female, because uh, Cass is sort of loosey-goosey. Um, she's younger. Um, she's got no impediments. She's got no kids. She's got no husband. She's out there. She's a PI running the gritty streets of Chicago. All she's thinking about is solving her case and getting on to the next thing. Harriet is looking at this from a career sort of point of view. Uh, she's a longtime police detective. Um, she's had this terrible thing happen. She's not sure if she wants to go this way or that. Um, And she's sort of stuck, as I said. Um, So they're sort of dealing with different things. Um, Harriet is a lot quieter than Cass is. Uh, She's a lot more meticulous uh, and uh, introverted uh, and self-contained. She does not reach out well to people. Um, And so those are different. I tried really hard to sort of make them different. I didn't want to sort of carry the same character through to a second series and just put a different name on her. I wanted them to be two distinct people. And I think I sort of accomplished that. Um, Cass is sort of funny. Oh, yes. Snarky. Um, she's always got a joke ready. Um, she's footloose and fancy free. Harriet does not joke. Um, she is not <laughs> there. She might have a little sly humor, uh, but that's not what she's in this for. Um, she's not there yet. Um, so we're, we're looking at two different, two different women. When you, when you're writing, um, do you know what the what the outcome is going to be? I mean, do you have that planned and uh, you lay it out ahead of time and then work to it and through uh, it, or how how does that work? I don't have a plan because I don't have an outline or a roadmap like most writers, most smart writers do. <laughs> I am what they call I am what they call a pantser, which means we sort of fly by the seat of our pants. Um, I have an idea of what the case might be about. And then I have to sort of figure out how to get it done. Um, I sort of look at that blank page on the laptop and I may have an idea of where I dump the first body. And these are my characters that I have to work with. And 
the great thing about crime fiction is that police officers sort of have a plan, right? Uh, they're not out there, you know, thinking stuff up out of their, their mind. They have a procedure. Uh, things go step by step. Uh, they uh, interview suspect by suspect and follow the breadcrumbs. And that's kind of like a net li- an outline for a writer. So we sort of follow what the police do. Uh, they have a body. They have a case. Uh, we're often running this way. Uh, and so that's how I kind of do it. And when I get stuck, and I often do, I have to double back and go back again. And I do that maybe, oh, I don't know, 20, 30 times a book. <laughs> I mean, it's just bad. <laughs> you know, I just sort of, oh, then I sort of think of things, I put it this way and say, oh, it might be better if I sort of shift it that way. And then I have to go back again. You know, so I do that like a, a million times a book. Uh, but that's kind of my process. Oh, boy. <laughs> that's how my brain sort of works best. And I just sort of don't fight it. I just go with what works for me. So that's what seems to work for me. I'm going to stick with it. I know. <laughs> how long does it take you to write a complete first draft? I take as long as they give me. Um, <laughs> uh, for the first series, I got uh, a year uh, to write each book, uh, which is great. 12 months, wonderful, nice and leisurely. Uh, this second series, I got nine months to write each book. So I took nine months. Uh, I'm not going to shave off a couple of weeks. I mean, I need that couple of weeks. So uh, nine months, that that's what I do. Right to the minute. <laughs> but not 1201. Oh 12.01 and that nine months, then I sort of send it. Yeah, but I take every freaking minute I can get. Now, when you, um, you say you're a pantsers, but does that mean that you, like, do you tend to write like an entire first draft and then go back and do a lot of work on it? Or do you work it out as you go? I work it out as I go. Uh, I think the prevailing wisdom is that you just go right all the way through. Just put that first draft down there as crappy as it might be. And then you have something to work with and then you go back and and do. But um, I sort of do it as I go because if I sort of sprint it like that, I know it's not right. I know I've taken a wrong turn somewhere. And just sort of, you know, going with it when I know it's wrong and I have to fix it. I just, I have to fix it there, <laughs> right? And then I can move on. Uh, if I fix it and I know where I'm going, then I can move on. If I don't fix it and I don't know where I'm going and then have to continue going in that wrong route when I know it's wrong, oh. that would drive me crazy. So I stop when I know I've taken that wrong turn, that millionth wrong turn in that novel. Stop, figure it out, figure out where I took a wrong turn, fix it. And then I move on, which is why I'm so slow writing. I'm a slow writer. Uh, I make no apologies. Uh, I am not going to win any sprints uh, for writing well, a novel. I don't think that nine months when you're working, only writing, what, through two and a half hours a day, I don't think that's slow. Uh, it is when you sort of factor in uh, the erasures, the having to go back and delete and delete and delete mm. and then go forward again. I mean, so it's a lot of back and forth. Um, it's a million choices you have to make when you write a book. Uh, half of those choices are probably going to be wrong. Uh, and you just have to figure <laughs> out, just figure out what, what you did and just fix it and just continue on. So you, you don't sort of try to stress too much about it because you know you're going to make those million mistakes. Just keep going. Uh, you'll get to the end eventually, and then you can go back and sort of make it pretty. But uh, that first draft is ugly. Uh, it's all over the place. And you have an opportunity at the tail end to take a break for a second. Then you go back, and then you make it all pretty and nice and put a bow on it and, and give it a kiss. So, like, your nine months <laughs> that you had, is it including that, what you do, the going back, or was that? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. So nine months, i got to figure it all out. Uh, good or bad, uh, and then I have to hand it in to them. So uh, it doesn't help coming from like a newspaper background where deadlines are all. Uh, the fact, even the idea of not meeting a deadline gives me hives. So that nine <laughs> months, <laughs> that nine months is it. Okay, that's it. That's all I have. Hand it in, boom, and then deal with whatever you messed up. So nine months is it. <laughs> well, if you didn't. If you were writing a book that hadn't sold, like your first book mm-hmm. and the second and third, mm-hmm. how do you ever decide when you're finished? If because you don't have a deadline. Well, um, there's a beginning and a middle and an end, <laughs> and when you sort of get to a point where you can't imagine 
what you would change or what you would need it to fix, I consider that your done point. Yeah, um, yeah. Unless you can figure out uh, something else that needs to be in there, uh, you're done. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when it doesn't sell, you have then a choice. Uh, do you sort of stop or do you just keep going? So, you know, I put a middle, a beginning, a middle and an end on each one of them and seems good, pretty good to me. Um, they bought them, you know, there's things they want to change. Fine. I'm great with that. Change them, make them better. Uh, but I keep moving forward. So book four, five, six, I don't care. Just keep on writing. (laughs) Well, Tracy, why don't you read a little bit from Hyde for us? Okay. I'll read, um, chapter two, uh, which is where we meet Harriet. Um, we sort of shifted past the discovery of the first body, but this is her first day at a new district, a new team, a new boss, a new everything. Chapter two, Hyde. Monday, 1-800-HOURS, 8 a.m. Harriet Foster couldn't get her legs to move as she stood on the sidewalk in front of CPD's District 1 building, 17th and State. She was expected inside, now, but she couldn't get past the sidewalk. Instead, she stood facing the door, cars whizzing past along the wide street at her back, firmly rooted in the in-between. This was her first day back from leave. The first day on a new team, there would be a new boss, a new desk, a new partner. Nothing she felt gave her any indication that she was ready, not one single thing. Only eight weeks had passed since it happened, eight weeks that felt more like eight seconds. She inhaled deeply and held the breath for a time before letting it out slowly, but the building was still there, cops and non-cops going in and out. Through the windows on the ground floor, she could see the uniformed cop standing at the metal detector just inside. He was watching her, definitely assessing her threat level. Weird black woman standing on the sidewalk, watching the building, friend or foe. Nothing in his level stare indicated that he was taking his assessment lightly. Top entry was around the side on 18th Street, access to the lot for staff and official vehicles, but she had circled the building at least six times unable to pull her car in. She knew it was ridiculous, something that she'd have to get over today. But right now, the bigger issue was deciding to get inside the building. Her star was in her hand, hard metal pressed to her sweating palm. She held it up so the cop could see it. He took one last sweep and they exchanged a look. Then he nodded and went back to his morning. Friend, not foe. She was one of them. Two months not long enough and yet interminable since the day her partner, Detective Glennis Thompson, had woken up on a Tuesday, fed her kids, kissed her husband Mike goodbye, then driven to work and blown her brains out in the CPD parking lot. A P.O. walking through the lot heard the shot and found her. Glennis would have been 43 on Christmas Day. Signs. There had to have been signs. There almost always were. But Foster had missed every single one, even though she had been trained to lock in, to be observant, intuitive even, to always see three moves ahead. Where had she failed? She had replayed that day over in her head for weeks, eight weeks, but the picking didn't change anything. Dead was forever. A chance missed to say just the right thing or do the right thing would never come around again. Glennis had been a good cop, a decorated cop and they had worked 11 years together, like well-oiled gills, ears in a high-performance machine. After Foster had lost her only son, Reg, to a thug with a gun who demanded his bike, a painful divorce had followed. Amid all the pain, Glynis had had helped her stay sane. Foster was godmother to Glynis' youngest son, Todd. There had been nothing unusual about the marriage as far as she could see. Mike and Glynis had been married more than 15 years. There had been ups and downs, of course, but nothing that might explain what had happened. The kids, though. Foster always came back to them. The Glynis she knew, the one she trusted with her life, wouldn't have done that to her kids, to Mike, to her. But she had. With a nod and an unconvincing half-smile, she moved past the cop at the detector and flashed her star to the cop sitting at the desk in the lobby before heading up to homicide, every step reigning in fear and self-doubt and resentment. By rote, the mask went up, 
Her shoulders went back a little farther, and the cop returned. Eight weeks. Eight seconds. She held her breath, kept her dark eyes steady, and put the hardness in them. Here we go, she muttered to herself. Here we go. And thank you. That was Tracy Clark reading from the beginning of Hyde. So how do you know police procedure other than from reading other, you know, other detective (laughs) books? Well, I am in the lucky position of having sort of cops on speed dial. Um, I sort of have (laughs) a couple of my family and they, of course, have partners, and they have – it's kind of like that E.F. Hutton commercial. Uh, they know two people. They know two people. So I have people that I can ask questions if I have them. So I've never been a police officer. I don't know the job firsthand. Uh, but when I sort of get to a scene where I know I'm going to need some kind of professional uh, information, I sort of text if I can or pick up the phone and ask or send an email, you know, what would you do in this situation? Um, how do you handle this kind of a suspect? Uh, what would you do at this crime scene if this thing happened? So if I need sort of information that sort of needs some kind of authenticity, then I ask the questions. Uh, the rest of it, I make up. Um, it's character-driven for me most of the time. Um, plot-driven, character-driven. I'm a character-driven kind of a person. So I'm interested in how the characters get by, how they get over, how they get through. And the other stuff, um, I just put enough of that in to make it interesting for the readers to sort of make it sound like it's real when it's just book people sort of playing around. Um, so just enough to make it sound right and smell light and sort of look right. And then the rest of it is all character. So that's how I do it. Do you have, um, do you identify with your heroines personally? Um, I don't know. Uh, you have to sort of get in their heads uh, as a writer. So I guess I identify with them at some level. Um, they're drastically different from me. I'm sort of a, a library cat and sort of a, I'm sort of a, one of those people who sort of give me a book, a quiet library, bag of ginger snaps. That's my life. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's my happy place. I'm not writing. I'm not running through alleys. You know, with Walter Mitty. I'm not a superhero. I mean, just give me a book and, and leave me alone. Uh, so these are people not like me. I mean, I'm not like this at all. I'm not Cass. I am not Harriet. But I can sort of get in their heads as writers do for all of their characters and sort of figure out uh, what they're working with, uh, what keeps them going, uh, what's their major flaw, what do they fear. Uh, I love sort of finding out how, what characters fear. Um, that sort of makes you act in a different way, doesn't it? If you're afraid of something and you're not dealing with whatever that fear is, you're not acting, you know, at an optimal level. Um, so looking at fears, uh, looking at backstory, looking at crises and drama and trauma, um, all of that's interesting for me. So all of that's created. Um, I'm sort of well-adjusted on my end. I'm, I'm happy here. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so I'm, that's stuff that I make up and sort of investigate and sort of dig into and sort of find the interesting thing about that. So uh, that's what writers do. Now, do you ever have police officers who um, read your books, like say, oh, I, that you got something wrong? Does that ever happen? Um, not yet. In fact, <laughs> I had a, a book signing uh, a couple of months, I mean, a couple of months ago, I think. And there was a cop in the audience who had my book in his little, little hands. And I said, oh, OK, here we go. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> when the when the Q&A part came, he said, you know what, Uh uh, the thing in this book, the hide, uh, the, because it sort of starts with a trauma, doesn't it? Uh, something tragic has happened to Harry. And I was sort of worried about um, that particular issue because it's a sensitive issue uh, for cops anywhere, not just in this city. And so I sort of wanted to sort of uh, approach it sensitively and with respect. Uh, I didn't want it to be sort of a fiction uh, throwaway. I wanted it to be sort of a serious thing that I took seriously. And this cop's stood up and he said, you know what? I liked the way you handled it. Um, It was very respectful and thank you. Um, Now, you don't get that um, very often. Uh, I was glad to get it then because I was worried about that particular thing. And I didn't want it to be sort of a flippant sort of a story device. I wanted it to be seriously taken. um, And I'm going to delve a little bit more into that as this series goes on. 
but I was glad to sort of have that sort of validation that it was okay. Um, nobody's come back to me so far and say, oh, you use the wrong kind of zip ties. I mean, I haven't had that kind of a thing yet. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's coming. Um, there's going to be some old cop somewhere. who's going to say, oh, we did. that's not the way we did it. I mean, so, you know, take it. Uh, you move on. Uh, yeah. You keep it moving. Yeah. Um, well, fine. <laughs> now, a lot of this, I mean, your stories are all set in Chicago. And mm-hmm. Chicago's really another character in the book, in a way. The setting is so important. I'm guessing that you are very familiar with all these parts of Chicago that you write about. Well, every location so far um, is a location that I know. Um, I've walked the streets. Um, Laura Wacker, I used to sort of walk that route from my office building to the garage two times a day. Um, So I know that dumpster's there. I know there are rats there because they've they've scurried across my shoe tops <laughs> as I've walked along. Uh, that's a stressful experience after a day's work. I mean, something you don't want to have happen to you, but I know that that's there. I know what it smells like down there because I've smelled it uh, for 20-some years. Um, so it's good to sort of know the streets that you're writing about. Um, it's not necessary, uh, but it sort of lends a, a level of authenticity and reality that you can't get from just sort of sitting at your writing desk and sort of figuring out or imagining what it might look like and smell like. So I know what the streets smell like. I know where the hookers hang out. I know where the, all the fun stuff happens. I know where the crime, I mean, so I know the neighborhoods, most of them are the ones I highlight. Uh, and so it sort does sort of lend uh, some authenticity to it and a level of, you know, being there that yeah. you don't get just by writing, you know, sort of a throwaway place. Um, I just changed the names of the diners and the restaurants and the, the food stands or whatever, but they're real spaces and they're places that you can go and get a Chicago hot dog or a deep dish pizza. Um, yep. It's all real. It's all <laughs> Chicago and it's all gritty. Would you ever set one of your books somewhere else? I might. If I get sort of bored with Chicago, I can't imagine when that will be, but yeah, I might at some later date. Um, I'm a lazy writer on top of everything else. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like to do too much research. I'd have to go someplace, like get on a plane, and then I have to sort of, you know, go around and try to find a, I, I, I a, quaint, a, quaint Brit- a quaint English village that hasn't had maybe. enough murders yet. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Otherwise, it's, yeah, it's too much work. I'm lazy. I don't, I don't know. Chicago's where I live. This is the city I know. I can find a million stories to tell here. Uh, when I run out of that million, then I'll sort of consider someplace else. Maybe I'll go uh, Scotland or something. I don't know. Um, why do you think Chicago works so well, though, for for your settings? Um, well, I mean, all kinds of crime happens here. I mean, this is a really crime town. Uh, we have gangsters, right? We've had gangsters. We've had Al Capone. I mean, we've had ga- gangsters in politics. I mean, we, uh, the last four governors of ours have gone to prison for corruption. I mean, everything happens in Chicago. I mean, there's nothing crime-wise that we do not know about. So to sort of find a crime story in my city, which is sort of inundated with crime, in, built into the brick of the foundations of our city here, um, I don't have to look far. Um, but on the opposite side of that, uh, we have the most wonderful people here, too. Uh, we have 70-some neighborhoods. Each one is different. Each one is vibrant. Uh, it smells different. It sounds different. It has a different movement. Um, so it's interesting. We have nice people, wonderful people, give you the shirt off their back. And then we on the other end, uh, we've got this history of <laughs> corruption. <laughs> Al, Al Capone and, you know, uh, yeah. St. Valentine's Day, Day Massacre. I mean, all of that stuff juxtaposition, but, but crime is here. Um, so when you sort of look for stories or when I do, I sort of look for the small ones, right? The little small thing in the paper, um, an interesting case, a uh, missing kid, uh, a body found somewhere. Uh, and then that sort of starts the imagination going. And then you sort of say, figure out, well, what if this happened? Or what if this happened? Okay. This- so that's actually, that um, is a good point. You, like you said, you start with a crime and then you're mm-hmm. just following the trail as if you were a detective. Mm-hmm. So the crimes that you start with are inspired by true crimes. Some of them maybe. I, I might find an interesting thing in the paper and it says, oh, hmm, okay, I wonder what happened there. 
And then you sort of build a story around it, a uh, backstory, characters, whatever. Uh, and then sometimes you just sort of have a spark of an idea um, like this uh, for Hyde. I mean, what kind of killer? Just think about it. I mean, I think redheads make up 12% of the population. So you really have to be a dedicated uh, killer to sort of seek out only that 12%. I'm not sure how many are in Chicago. I haven't looked that up. But um, this is a specific killer. He's not looking for just anybody he can find on the street. Um, he is doing research, and he is finding just the right woman, just the right target. Um, so it started with that. I said, well, oh, an interesting thing about oh, redheads, not too many of them. Hmm. What kind of person would you have to be, <laughs> right, to sort yeah. of want just that particular type? And so that sort of starts the gears moving uh, and starts the imagination going. And then you sort of build cases, uh, backstory or flaws or sort of kinks that sort of creates uh, the foundation for that. So that's how Hyde came about. Uh, just the idea of redheads, not very many of them. This killer waits for just those. Mm. Um, so it tells you sort of what kind of character you're dealing with. And then you sort of build all the other stuff around that. Yeah. It's just amazing that, it's just amazing that you know, there's so many characters in here. And, and yet, you know, she keeps track of all of them as she goes along. I mean, it's just. Yeah, I'm impressed. I really am. <laughs> just, a, just a weird mind. I, I can't explain it. I mean, when you sort of get into the story, it's kind of like uh, it moves you along as opposed to you moving it along. Um, you're sort of in it. Mm -hmm. um, and you just sort of go where the story goes and goes where the case goes and go where your character arcs are going. Um, Harriet's moving in a sort of really slow pace uh, in one direction. Um, she's not going where she needs to go. Um, she's not going well, hopefully, ultimately, she, ultimately she will get. So you sort of are in the sort of trenches with her, trying to sort of dig her out as you sort of dig your story out, um, which is kind of a weird position to be in. Uh, but it's kind of fun, too. Uh, discovery is fun. Well, what's um, even weirder, though, is that you're also at times writing from the point of view of the killer or yeah. from other people who maybe aren't the killer but are fairly dark have some evil tendencies. Mm -hmm. How do you get inside their head? And is that disturbing to you <laughs> to be in the head oh, of a killer? <laughs> no, it was absolutely fun. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I've never sort of had that sort of alternating point of view before. Uh, the first series was first person only. Uh, so we were in Cass's uh, uh, body and saw the things through her eyes. To be in the uh, body of a killer, a serial killer at that, um, was really fun, uh, really, <laughs> really creepy. Um, but when you think of them or think of the killers, um, they don't see themselves as a bad guy, right? They just work. They just, you know, living their lives. This is what they need. Uh, this is what they're going after, and it's all fine with them. So they're just they're just doing what they're doing. Um, so you have to sort of write it from that perspective. Um, I'm not doing anything wrong. I mean, this is this is me. Uh, this is what I got to do, and this is what I'm going to do. And so, it's a game to me, fun, and it was kind of fun to sort of get into that, you know, willy nilly sort of <laughs> anything happens. You know, I love that. Um, uh, but yeah, but then you have to sort of highlight it with also Harriet's thing. So she's trying to catch him. Uh, he, they're trying to get away, and uh, so the cat and mouse game. It's wonderful. It's kind of sort of fun to get in that dark and creepy sort of mindset. Why and then go off and watch Midsummer Murder. <laughs> Why do you think readers like to get in, like that darkness? Why are, why are readers drawn to that? I, because that's safe, I think. In the pages of a book, uh, that's safe. Uh, you can put that book down at any point. Uh, you can close it off at that chapter and go on with your life. Uh, and I think it's also a way of sort of dealing with or sort of uh, – sort of familiarizing yourself or knowing uh, what evil is, uh, but safe evil, right? It's safe evil because that's in a book. It's not in your house. Uh, and you can sort of put it away when you need to. But it, I think it also teaches us something about human nature and how we sort of treat each other and how we sort of live in a society of all these different people that we live in a society with and how we get along and go through. So um, it's safe to sort of do it in fiction. Um, we can see it, um, not like it, and then put it away and then go on with our lives and, and hopefully be safe. 
You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Tracy Clark, author of Hyde. So one of your books may has been optioned for a movie or a series. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm told, I'm, I'm sort of new to the, the writing game, so I'm told by the, all the, the, the pro writers there that, you know, options are great, um, but they often don't go any place. Um, Sony Television uh, optioned the first book, Broken Places, and they just re-upped the option uh, a few months ago, and so they have it for another year. Um, they can choose to do something with it, or they can choose to let it go, uh, but uh, I'm going to leave it to them. They can do with it what they will. And I've got another book to write, and I've got nine months to do it. And so that's what I'm concentrating <laughs> concentrating on. And if something great happens, absolutely, that's wonderful. If nothing happens, uh, the next book is due, and I'll go on with that too. Would you be involved in the screenwriting, or is that something you just leave to the screenwriting I, professionals? I would probably just leave it to them. Uh, I do books. Uh, I don't know anything about screenwriting. Um, I might want to sort of go to the set, depending on who's uh, the, who they cast as, <laughs> as cast. I would like to see. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, after I see craft services and get a donut or something, I'm ready to go. Um, so <laughs> I leave it to them. Uh, the books are mine. Uh, the other stuff is theirs. And, and that's how I'm going to do it. At what point did you decide you were going to start writing books? I think from the moment I sort of figured out as a kid that books were written by actual people and they just didn't sprout out out of the vegetable garden somewhere, you know, <laughs> you know fully formed, um, that's all I could think about. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to write a story, too. Um, so I was that weird kid with the notebook under their mattress with little silly stories in it. And then when I started writing, reading for myself, I sort of gravitated to, you know, Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys and things like that because – I would watch those old black and white movies, uh, The Thin Man, uh, Boston Blackie. Now, all the kids are outside playing. I'm inside with my grandmother watching The Thin Man and Boston Blackie. I mean, that tells you sort of the weirdness that I was as a kid. But I was more interested in that than I was playing ball outside. So uh, when I sort of got to the point where I realized that books were things that people did and that maybe I could do it too, that's all I could think about. So I wanted to sort of write the kinds of things that I enjoyed watching and reading with my old folks. And so I sort of gravitated to crime fiction and mysteries and stuff like that. So that's, that's my niche. Uh, that was my drive. Uh, and I just kept at it until I got good enough at it to sort of get somewhere. Uh, and that took years. Um, I like to say I'm an overnight success that took more than 20 years, but that's true. <laughs> Um, those 20 some years that I was out there with all those rejection letters were not wasted time though, because I was sort of getting better at it. The more you do it, the better you get. Okay. So you actually worked on the first few books for many years. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, wow. And when you got that first contract, How'd you celebrate? Um, I don't know. I don't think I did. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know. I didn't do anything spectacular. Just, I'll just say that. I'm just, I probably just sort of grinned and said yes, and then sort of looked <laughs> over at my rejection letters piled. I was, well, maybe about that. You know, there's an inner satisfaction of sort of knowing that you didn't give up, and you stuck with it, and you finally got to where you wanted to go. Um, I think. That was probably it. I might have, you know, bought a pizza or something. I don't remember what I did. <laughs> but it's a, I would just say it's a happy feeling. It's a happy feeling. Now, you mentioned that um, you switch over at 8 o'clock from uh -huh. writing to your day job. Does that mean you're working remotely, that you're working from home? Yeah. Uh, during the pandemic, they sent all of us home, and we're all everywhere uh, around the city um, permanently uh, is our situation. So, I'm working from my den. I have two laptops, one for fiction and one for work. And so the fiction one comes out at 5.30 and it goes back at 8. <laughs> and that's when I sort of pick up the other one. And, and if I have an idea for the story that I'm writing, I have a sort of stack of post-it notes that I sort of stick on the side of my laptop. Uh, and it's ready for me uh, at 5.30 the next morning. So 8 o'clock is all I got. Then I have to do the day job. And then if something comes to me, I put it on there for 5.30. And then we're off and going. So. Do you, when you start out at 530 every morning, do you go back and rewrite what you did 
the day before or do you move forward or does it depend? It depends. Uh, if I know what I wrote the day before is wrong and I took a wrong turn because now I'm thinking about it all night. It's not yeah. like eight o'clock, you know, that's it. I mean, as I'm sleeping, uh, these scenes are sort of playing in my head and I sort of, if I know that I've made a, a wrong turn and I could have gotten a little bit more out of that character or that scene going this way, uh, then 5.30, I go back and fix that and then move forward. Um, if I'm pretty satisfied with the thing I did the day before, I'm moving in the right direction, it's working the way it needs to, then I can move forward and go on to the next thing. But it depends where I leave it. I'm pretty amazed about how disciplined you are. <laughs> you kind of have to. <laughs> I think all those years in journalism sort of teaches you how to not to be too precious about what you're writing to. I mean, you have a deadline. This thing has to be in there by that time. You don't have a lot of time to navel gaze and sort of think about, oh, you know, uh, it has to be there. You have to do it. It has to be there by then. Uh, and I sort of approach book writing the same way. Um, this is all the time I've got. I've got to get as much as I can do in this two and a half hours or whatever, and then move on to the next thing and then come back to it when I can get back to it. But uh, you have to keep it on a schedule. You have to sort of get to, a, you know, keep things going. <laughs> now, there are days uh, when I can sit in that 530 to 8 session and I only get half a paragraph. I mean, there's no word count that I sort of shoot for. Oh, interesting. Um, I think there's, yeah, I think there's some writers who have to do like 2,000 words a day and they're not happy unless they sort of hit that mark. I can do half a paragraph one morning, uh, nothing's coming. And then the next morning I can do 2,500 words. Um, it all depends on where I am, how stuck I am, how far off the, the path I went. Uh, and what I have to sort of do to fix it. So it can vary. It can vary. Do you think the time will come when you will switch to writing full time? Writing novels uh, full time? I, I don't know. I hope so. Uh, maybe <laughs> if this movie deal comes through. Uh, <laughs> you know, but I kind of like my job too. I love it. I've done it for, you know, 20 some years. Uh, it's interesting every single day. Every day is different. Um, how can you sort of get better at doing, you know, comic strips and puzzles? I mean, it's a wonderful sort of job to have. How did you get into editing comic strips and puzzles? <laughs> well, I graduated from grad school. I needed a job. I had student loans to pay off. I mean, so, and they were looking for editors. So that's how I started. Um, so I do like, uh, I do Rick Steves. I do the Ask Amy columns. I do LA Times. I mean, so I have a, a wonderful slate of things that I do that sort of vary my day. And I kind of love it. I love the people I work with. Uh, columnists are sort of, uh, you know, prima donnas at some point. But, <laughs> you know, they're, even they are fun to sort of work. You know, so it's kind of, it's a cool job to have, I think. So, like, what's a puzzle that you would edit? I mean, how, and how would you, how do you edit a puzzle? <laughs> That's... Well, it depends. I mean, I do crossword puzzles. Uh, you just sort of work the puzzle, make sure that all the boxes match and all the clues are great. Uh, that there's nothing in there that's offensive. Uh, make sure that there, the numbers sort of match up. I also do jumble. So I, I'm looking at artwork too, uh, fingers, <laughs> where people's fingers are, um, whether or not there's too much cleavage, um, whether or not the puzzle works out, uh, filling in those boxes, uh, getting it done. Um, so yeah, that's, somebody's got to do it. Editor, that's our editor's job. Uh, we have to work the puzzles before you work the puzzles because if God forbid, uh, we should make a mistake and, you know, 1,700 people, you know, yeah. into the, you know, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you don't want that to happen. So we're there uh, <laughs> to make sure that does not happen. And if it does happen, that it doesn't happen on a Friday at three o'clock when all you want to do is just sort of turn your computer off and go home. So uh, <laughs> now what about editing comic strips mm-hmm. are, um, you know, I'm sure it's all the same things, but it's just, it's just like, give me an example of something that you would, yesterday, did you edit any comic strips this week? And, and what did you, like, what changes would you make? Well, you're looking for uh, typos and grammatical mistakes. Um, you're also looking whether or not the date's on there, the byline's there. Um, you're checking for offensive material, uh, offensive words, uh, derogatory terms. Um, you're looking at also the artwork. So you're checking fingers, make sure there's no, no middle fingers that are uh, <laughs> showing. Um, you're checking to see whether or not there are any body parts showing. Uh, you're checking all of that. So we're looking for middle of the road. 
Uh, these are comic strips that go on the funny pages. Uh, these are family friendly. So anything that is not family friendly, anything that is, could be considered offensive or derogatory. So we're looking for all of those things. So typos, grammatical errors, uh, artwork we're checking. Uh, we're checking for offensive material. So all those things, those boxes we have to check. And then we move it on and it ends up on your paper on Sunday or during the, the week. And there we go. Okay, and so hopefully I've got to hear anything else about it. I've got to ask. Could yep. you ever edit Dilbert? <laughs> Thank God, no. Um, <laughs> and, wrote, yeah. For anyone who isn't up to this, the, uh, the, uh, from everybody. Yeah, yeah. No, I did not do Dilbert. Dilbert, um, the, the creator of Dilbert has been, went on some kind of racist rant on, I don't know, was it YouTube or something and, and has really, rightly gotten some pushback <laughs> on mm-hmm. that and those are the, the editorial decisions that you have to make because you know you know this is a newspaper it's a business uh your families are looking at it not just you know adults um and so all of those start to go into consideration your free speech is your free speech absolutely entitled to that um but we also to have to have responsibility to sort of you know have things that uh, are in our papers uh, reflective of their, our philosophy and, and what we're sort of trying to do. So, right, right. It's a terrible, um, terrible situation, but you know, uh, have to sort of balance. What do you see as the future of the newspaper industry? Oh, uh, newspaper, I don't know. I absolutely don't know because we're sort of in a weird spot. Um, everything's online, everything's electronic, everything's digital. And it's not the same industry. Um, people lived and died by their newspapers back in the day. I mean, you had to have that morning paper, mm-hmm. an evening, mm-hmm. an evening, an evening paper, an evening edition. So you got the morning paper on your way to work, the evening edition on your way home. That's changed. Um, and people are getting their information instantaneously on their phones everywhere. Yeah. Um, so we're sort of in a, a state of flux in newspapers. Uh, and I don't know where it's going to end, but, uh, Hopefully, uh, can hold on for a little bit longer. Cause I kind of like, I kind of like my job. <laughs> well, you know, I never subscribed to the paper edition of the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I subscribed to both digitally, mm-hmm. um, just because it's so easy. And well, mm-hmm. really, it's because I kept getting wanting to read the articles and running out of the free ones every time, and and so <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, I'll I'll go ahead and and pay for this. And I love the New York Times puzzles. Mm-hmm. And um, and do quite a few of those. So, have you ever done any puzzle design yourself? No, um, ex- no, uh-uh. <laughs> not your thing. <laughs> no, and it didn't work them a great deal before I started the job. And now that I do it as a job, I can't even imagine wanting to do them on my free time. Um, uh, of course, you know, yeah. Why would you? <laughs> <laughs> and to construct one. Ugh. No, yeah. I'd rather read a book. <laughs> what kind of books do you read? Um, I like mysteries. I like uh, crime novels. Um, that's my sort of sweet spot. Um, I also Big like histor- Yeah, I, I like his- <laughs> <laughs> I like historical fiction. I like uh, Tudor history, which is kind of weird for me. But I Henry the Eighth and all his six wives love it. Um, Lucy Worsley is one of my all uh, you know spirit animals at this point. I love kind that kind of thing to sort of go back and find out how weird these people were um so i read everything anything that looks interesting i find an interesting cover in a bookstore i'm going to take it um i just read all the time i love it uh i can't imagine not having anything to read so whatever you know floats my boat whatever interests me i'm going to read it (laughs) well we're out of time and i want to thank you for being with us today tracy this was a lot of fun thanks for having me and caroline do you have some closing words for us yeah, I do. If you if you read this, you'll you'll understand this. Uh, this this if you if this is a line from the book. If you live long enough, you see everything at least once. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> to live by. <laughs> yep, and we, we hope we live that long. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you once again, and look Thanks. forward to the next book in the Harriet Foster series. All next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.